Hello and welcome to Paul Martin's Catholic Podcast. I'm Paul Martin. I used to be a Presbyterian, then Pentecostal lay preacher. After studying the Bible and church history afresh, I converted to Catholicism in December 2017. And I used to be a lay preacher and I studied at the Presbyterian Theological College in Melbourne. And we learned a lot about the early church, and we learned a lot about the church at the time of the Reformation. But from the time of Constantine to before the Reformation, we learned very little because we considered the church to have been in the darkness of Catholicism. And when I became a Catholic, I read the history from the Catholic perspective, and it was very, very different. I feel privileged to have learned both uh, viewpoints, but there was a great deal of history that was blotted out when I learned from the Protestant perspective. And I'm talking today about William Shakespeare. He was arguably, or most likely in my opinion, and the opinion of many people, that he was the greatest English writer in history and perhaps one of the greatest writers ever. He was an absolute genius of a man, and he died at the age of roughly 52 years. He lived from roughly 1564 to 1616. He was baptised Anglican, although that was compulsory in those days. But was he actually a Catholic? And there is strong evidence from what's known about his family and his close friends, and he himself. There's strong evidence from his own writings as well. So we're going to look at the background and circumstances in which Shakespeare lived. Then we're going to look at the evidence from his own life. And then we're going to look at his own plays and what they seem to say about Catholicism. So he lived in the 1500s till the 1600s and Catholic, England was a Catholic country until the time of Henry VIII. Henry VIII reigned from 1509 to 1547 and in 1536 he renounced Catholicism after almost a millennium in England. And he had Catholics persecuted, tortured, or executed. And why did he do it? Well, his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, a beautiful Spanish woman who was very popular with the English people and did a lot to help charity and to help the poorer people of England, could not give him a son. In fact, modern DNA actually confirms that it's the father who determines the, the gender of the child, not the mother, but uh, Henry VIII didn't know that, so he wrote to the Pope asking for an annulment. Now, Henry VIII was a man who genuinely believed in Catholicism, and he even wrote a, a book defending the faith, and the Pope called him Defender of the Faith. But he then asked the Pope for an annulment of his marriage. And his marriage was a valid marriage. He'd married her in good faith. 
he was open to having children. And so under Catholic doctrine, his, valid, his marriage was valid, and for him to divorce her and marry someone else would make him an adulterer. And the Pope, being a moral man, refused to give him an annulment. So he simply renounced Catholicism and made himself the head of the church in England. And he was then succeeded by his nine-year-old son, Edward VI. He reigned from 1547 to 53. He was an Anglican, like his father. And then there was a Lady Jane Grey who reigned for nine days in 1553. She was a Protestant. And then she was succeeded by Mary I, or Mary Tudor, who was a Catholic, who reigned from 1553 to 58. She was the legitimate daughter of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. And she died of cancer at the age of 42. And she tried to have, to reverse what her father had done. But it was unsuccessful. And people were more brutal and less tolerant then. So many Protestants were burned at the stake and executed in that five year period just as the Protestants had done that to Catholics for decades. And I'm not here to defend brutality and intolerance by either side, but only to point out that it happened a lot more from Protestants versus Catholics than the other way. And then she was succeeded by her bastard half-sister, Elizabeth, Elizabeth I. She was the daughter of Henry VIII, and Henry's illegitimate marriage, adulterous marriage, to Anne Boleyn. And Elizabeth I reigned from 1558 to 1603. And so Shakespeare spent most of his life living under the reign of Elizabeth I. He was born during her reign, and he was born at a time where under Elizabeth I, it was legal to believe in Catholicism. But it was illegal to practice it. If you went to a Catholic priest for confession or communion or attended mass, you could be executed. And under Elizabeth I, there was a 45-year reign of terror torture, spies, executions of Catholic dissidents. And they were exceptionally cruel, the many criminal scumbags who worked for Elizabeth I. And Elizabeth I had rapists and murderers released from prison if they would work for her as her spies and informants and enforcers. And if you want to listen to more on that, you can check out my podcast, number 149, Catholic Martyrs of the English Reformation. And eventually, she was succeeded by King James. King James VI of Scotland and the I of England. He was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, not to be confused with Mary I of England, whom I mentioned, who was a Catholic, 
Mary Queen of Scots was also a Catholic and reigned at the same time as Mary I of England. But King James was the son of the Scottish Queen and he became King of England and Scotland and then attempted to unite them as one country. And early on in his reign, in 1603, for about a year and a half to two years, he tried to bring in tolerance for Catholics, but he was vetoed by too many Protestant Puritan fanatics who would have overthrown him had he tried to tolerate them. And his son, Charles I, who was also a Protestant and married a Catholic and was suspected of wanting to tolerate Catholics, eventually was overthrown and it led to a bloodbath and the dictatorship of Oliver Cromwell. But this was decades after Shakespeare's death. And if you want to listen to more on that, I've done a podcast number 133, Cromwell's Reign of Terror. So let's get into Shakespeare, what we know about him. He was born into a family of recusant Catholics. There's a good podcast you can listen to by Joseph Pierce. His lecture, Will the Real William Shakespeare Please Stand Up? So Shakespeare was a, an exceptionally talented and brilliant man. He wrote 39 plays, 154 sonnets, that's like poems, and two long narrative poems. And I mentioned he lived from 1564 to 1616. And there's a period of some lost years in his, in his biography. And this is roughly from 1585, when he was about 21 years old, until 1592 which is seven years later when he would have been about 28, I suppose. And it's unknown what he was doing, but there is evidence that he was in Rome and that he visited Rome. And there's strong evidence from his writings. He wrote a huge number of his, his plays. They really fall into three categories. Most people, most historians, categorise his poems in free forms, but I've got three of my own. The free forms that they're categorised usually are comedies, tragedies and histories. Now comedies doesn't necessarily mean something that's funny, although they did have a lot of humour in them, but it just means a play with a happy ending. And the tragedies just means a play with a sad ending and the histories were ones about history. And his family, during the time of Elizabeth I, there were three types of Catholics in England at the time. There were conformists. Conformists were people who joined the Anglican Church because they didn't want to be fined, but they followed Catholicism in their hearts. But within one or two generations, they had forgotten about their Catholic faith and they just became Anglican. And within a generation or so after that, many of them became Puritan fanatics who hated 
not only Catholicism, but even many aspects of Anglicanism that they considered to be, in inverted commas, too Catholic. So there were conformists. Then there were papists who went to the Anglican Church to avoid fines, but were secretly and covertly Catholic. And then the third group were called recusants. There were people who refused any compromise and were fined for not attending the Anglican Church. And John Shakespeare, the father of William, was a recusant Catholic. And Susanna Shakespeare, in 1606, his daughter was listed as a recusant. And his, so his daughter, his parents and himself never went to the Anglican Church. And it's most likely for William the same reason his family didn't go. There was uh, one Thomas Lucy, an English politician who persecuted Catholics, including Shakespeare's relatives, the Arden family. And Shakespeare mocked him in a poem, and Shakespeare often poached rabbits and venison off his estate. And Shakespeare also knew Robert Southwell. Robert Southwell was a Jesuit fugitive who was hanged and disemboweled for being a priest and a missionary in England in 1595. And when Queen Elizabeth I passed away, and she was a big fan of Shakespeare, and he met her on many occasions, he knew her, Shakespeare wrote no eulogy at her death. Instead, he wrote two happy plays, Measure for Measure and All's Well That Ends Well. And he wrote those two plays after King James came to power and there was a huge amount of optimism among England's Catholics at the time. There was roughly 18 months. But then things went south and King James, who was a... a bisexual man. He was a very corrupt leader and he was also a very pragmatic leader who did what he could to have power and to hold on to it and so he introduced intolerance. Sadly that intolerance that he brought in and enabled of the Puritan fanatics while it was not his undoing it was his son's undoing. Charles I, but that's a, another story. That's more in my number 133 podcast on Cromwell's Reign of Terror. So we've looked at what Shakespeare did, and then there are, there are other pieces of evidence. And after he had written Measure for Measure and All's Well That Ends Well, and King James began introducing his intolerance towards Catholics, um, Shakespeare wrote two of his most tragic and abysmal plays, King Lear and Macbeth. And then Shakespeare bought the Black Friars Gatehouse. This was a property 
that had always been in Catholic hands and it was a hot spot for underground Catholic activity and it had secret passageways. And four years after Shakespeare died, a floor collapsed and killed some people while a Catholic mass was taking place in a secret location. And when Shakespeare died, most of the people in his will were local militant Catholics that he had known since childhood. So for someone like him, many people when they become famous or popular and they start walking in circles with kings and queens like Shakespeare did, they often blow off or ignore dissident friends of theirs who might get them into trouble. Well, not Shakespeare. We find the opposite. He remained loyal to his Catholic militant Catholic recusant friends. And there was John Robinson, his close companion prior to his death was the brother of an underground Catholic priest. And Shakespeare's dialectic seems to be about traditional Catholic values versus secularism and totalitarianism and oppressors. And a common theme in his plays in almost all of his historical plays, in fact, seems to be about illegitimacy. There's Hamlet, Macbeth, Richard III, because Elizabeth I was the bastard daughter of Anne Boleyn. And there's the theme of the true ruler being usurped and overthrown. And just an... Uh, Another factoid is Anne Hathaway, Shakespeare's wife, was from a Catholic family. Well, I'm going to read an article by an Andreas Kramatz called The Shakespeare Code, The Secret Catholic Bard. And it's uh, from catholic.net. And it says, Curiously, X-ray research now tells us that the poet's famous flower portrait was painted over a beautiful picture of the Blessed Virgin Mary with her child. Does that mirror the fact that Shakespeare himself led a double life? When in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state. What does William Shakespeare's immortal sonnet 29 really mean? Was the melancholy bard transmitting a, coast, a coded message? The hypothesis that the playwright concealed his secret Catholic identity during the years of Elizabethan persecution has long been the subject of academic daydreams. But startling revelations in a book that is so far available only in German may take the hypothesis out of the realm of dreams. Hildegard Hammerschmidt Hummel's book, The Hidden Existence of William Shakespeare, Poet and Rebel in the Catholic Underground, uncovers recent historical discoveries. A centrepiece in the book is a hitherto unknown entry in the Pilgrim's Book of the English College in Rome. On April the 16th, 1585, a Gululimus Clercus Stratfordiensis, William's secretary of Stratford, signed his name on arriving to the college. 
Was this the same William who was born in Stratford-on-Avon? Shakespeare would have been 21 at the time. Similar entries are to be found in 1587 and 1589. Remarkably, these free visits in Rome coincide with the so-called seven lost years in Shakespeare's official biography. It also coincides with the dates that English Catholics in exile met in Rome with their leaders, Robert Parsons and William Allen, to develop new strategies of resistance in the Protestant England of Queen Elizabeth I. Scholars have long agreed that Shakespeare's family background was staunchly Catholic, as Roche reported. Hammerschmidt now offers further details that support the thesis that Shakespeare held to the faith of his family, preferring to hide his true colours and work secretly rather than risk martyrdom. For seven years, William was taught at the Latin school by Simon Hunt, a Catholic. In 1575, Hunt went to the Jesuit Collegium Anglicum in Douai, which in turn moved to Reims, France in 1578. Perhaps not coincidentally, Reims figures as a place of study in Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. Hammerschmidt claims that the young Shakespeare on reaching college age in 1578 would have gone to study there. Reims was then the only English Catholic college and represented the normal route for other English Catholics who desired to study humanities. This education there would have provided him with all necessary requisites for his later career in poetry. Hammerschmidt cites a record of Shakespeare's father John raising a major loan that year and surmises that its purpose may have been to finance these studies. As Ernst Honigmann points out in his book on Shakespeare's lost years, William took a job as a private tutor in 1580 in the household of Alexander Hockton in Lancashire under the name Shakeshaft, which had already been used by his grandfather at the time, the place where he was a Catholic stronghold or even as Richard Wilson writes in the Times Literary Supplement, December 19, 1997, nothing less than the secret college and headquarters of the English Counter-Reformation equipped with a big library and dedicated to an intense apologetic work against the Anglican heretics. Furthermore, Shakespeare is mentioned in Hockton's will. The same document in what Hammerschmidt calls coded language gives hints to Hockton's involvement in a secret organisation for the protection of hiding Catholic priests. In 1582, Shakespeare married Anne Hathaway and took up residence in Stratford. What would have been doing in Rome three years later then in order to have signed the college's guest book Hammerschmidt proposes that Shakespeare's sudden departure from England may have been triggered by his embroilment in the Arden-Somerville family, his mother's family, in a Catholic conspiracy. He may have feared that his own membership in a Catholic secret organisation 
could have brought him into trouble and might have preferred to disappear for a while. Only in 1592 does the historical record definitively resume as Shakespeare again surfaces in England at the beginning of his illustrious career. Even then, Shakespeare may have remained secretly linked to the Catholic resistance. Shakespeare acquired part of the London Blackfriars building, though he himself never lived there. The Dominican facility was riddled with hidden tunnels and passages and was a meeting place and refuge for persecuted priests. The building's purpose came to light in 1623 after Shakespeare's death when a ceiling suddenly collapsed during a secret Catholic service killing 99 of the faithful. They were denied church burial by the Anglican Archbishop of London. When Shakespeare bought this property in the contract, he gave indications that reveal, as Hammerschmidt writes, an almost perfect arrangement of the Catholic underground. The poet contributed to lodging, and the owner of the Mermaid Tavern, the food provision, a magnate of a ship, secured the transportation and the business manager of Shakespeare's company, the organisation. The nearby theatre could provide costumes, wigs and false beards if required. Shakespeare provided for the house's upkeep even after his death. Could he then have travelled once more to Rome? In October 1613, the presumed pseudonym Ricardus Stratfortus appears on the college's guest book. Richard was the name of Shakespeare's paternal grandfather and also of the last of his brothers, buried in Stratford in February 1613. Not a few passages of Shakespeare's work take on fresh meaning in the light of his crypto-Catholicism and the inner conflict of conscience occasioned by the high opinion in which London society held their most esteemed poet. Hammerschmidt reads sonnets 29 and 66 as bemoaning the desperate situation of the Catholic population in Elizabethan England. Curiously, X-ray research now tells us that the poems, the poet's famous flower portrait was painted over a beautiful picture of the Blessed Virgin Mary with her child. Does that mirror the fact that Shakespeare himself led a double life? I'm just going to add a little note here that he would have painted over that picture to avoid it being destroyed by Anglican persecutors of Catholics. But I'll go on the last paragraph of the article. If Hammerschmidt's theories are true, Shakespeare's genius is further reflected in his ability to so discreetly reflect on Catholic issues in public that his true intentions are revealed only to the eye of the initiated. And Elizabeth herself, one of Shakespeare's greatest admirers, would have been shocked to learn his real intent in writing the concluding line of Sonnet 29, I scorn to change my state with kings. And here ends the article. Now I'm going to take a look at the actual writings of Shakespeare and what they tell us about who he was.
Now, I mentioned the three categories of comedies, tragedies, and histories, but I'm going to propose three categories of my own. One category is about the pagan world of the Greco-Roman past of mythology. The next category are about historical plays about England's Catholic past. And then the other category are contemporary plays about mostly Italian or other foreign Catholic nations. So he wrote several pagan stories, The Tempest, A Midsummer Night's Dream, A Comedy of Errors, Troilus and Cressida, Timon of Athens, Coriolanus, Julius Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra, and Cymbeline, that's about ancient Greece and Rome and Troy, Titus Andronicus, about Rome, Pericles, Prince of Tyre, which is in Antioch, and King Lear, which is an ancient British legend from about the 8th century BC, and also As You Like It. And there's no evidence that he himself was a pagan, uh, but many, most of the most cultured people in those days wrote about or studied the Greco-Roman world. Then the next category are about England's Catholic past. The only two exceptions are Macbeth, uh, which is set in Scotland in the 10 hundreds, so that's Scotland's Catholic past, and Hamlet, which is the Prince of Denmark, Denmark's Catholic past. So it's the same difference. He wrote stories about England's Catholic past. It's as if he's calling back, and most of those stories are about illegitimate kings on the throne. And then the third category are his plays about Italian foreign Catholics. Two Gentlemen of Verona is in Italy, Twelfth Night, or what you will, Italy and Illyria, Measure for Measure in Italy, Much Ado About Nothing, Italy, The Merchant of Venice, Italy, Love's Labour's Lost, set in Spain, Navarra, and All's Well That Ends Well in France and Italy, The Taming of the Shrew, Italy, The Winter's Tale in Sicily and Bohemia, Romeo and Juliet, Italy, and Othello, the Moor of Venice, set in Italy. And the poems he wrote that seem to be suspiciously Catholic are Sonnets 2966 and his sonnet The Phoenix and the Turtle. Uh, not every one of his plays really looks at Catholicism, but I'm going to look at the ones that seem to give the hints of that. So the first one, and this is not in any particular category or order, is Measure for Measure. And it's based off Matthew chapter 7 verse 2 on how you judge others, you will be judged. It's set in Catholic Vienna, Italy. It begins with a group of soldiers looking forward to a war with Hungary. And Hungary was 90% Calvinist at the time. 
And there's a harsh judge called Angelo who wants to execute Claudio for fornication despite marrying the girl he impregnated. So his sister Isabella, who is a novice nun, tries to save his life. So Angelo asks for sex, but she refuses as it will endanger her soul. And the Duke is spying on Angelo. He's dressed as a friar. And it's parallels to the woman caught in adultery, which you can read about in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. And also the story of Susanna, which is found in the Catholic Bible, but not Protestant Bibles. And if any Protestants are listening, or Catholics, I recommend you read that beautiful story of Susanna. And Measure for Measure. So it has the theme of mercy, justice, hypocrisy, vindication... And the nun in the story is the heroine. The next one is Macbeth. It's set in Scotland in the 1000s. Uh, the Scots are under King Duncan. Now, King Duncan was not the king of Scotland. He was a king in Scotland at a time when they had different kings ruling different parts of Scotland. But anyway, King it's the Catholic Scots who are fighting against the pagan Norse. That's how it, it begins. And three witches are plotting against this Catholic king who's fighting against the, the Norse, the pagan Vikings. And these witches convince King Duncan's general, Macbeth, to seize the throne. The queen witch is Hecate which was a pagan deity, and he follows their advice and he turns into a murderer, a tyrant, a tormented soul, and eventually he's beheaded in disgrace. And the King of Alba and Maury, that's what it's about in 1032 to 1057, and King James was a descendant of Malcolm III, whose army overthrew Macbeth. So, there you are. Doesn't mean Macbeth is greatly historical. It is largely fictionalised, but it's a fascinating story to read about. The next one is The Merchant of Venice. It's about a group of Italian Catholics in Venice who out, outwit Shylock, a ruthless Jew. And it ends with his daughter, who's converted to Christianity, and himself converting as well. Now, they don't talk about being a Catholic in these plays, but they do talk about being a Christian. And a Christian in those days, in Italy, in Venice, in those places, means a Catholic. Except Shakespeare couldn't have been too explicit... But he has a group of Catholic Christians in Catholic countries. The next one is Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. Hamlet meets the ghost of his deceased father who roams the world at night and at daytime burns away for his sins. This is a clear reference to purgatory. And Hamlet contemplates suicide, but he fears judgment. And the ghost is looking for a means to rest in peace. And Hamlet goes to study in Wittenberg. 
and his mother tells him, I pray thee stay with us, go not to Wittenberg. Now some Protestants have read this and thought, aha, Martin Luther was a lecturer at the University of Wittenberg. This must be a reference to Protestantism. But there's a problem with that. Martin Luther lived in the 1500s, whereas Macbeth is based off Ambleth, who lived in the 12th century, and he was a Ute or Danish prince in Iceland. So just because he went to the same city that centuries later a Protestant reformer would be in, that's a bit of a stretch to try and argue that that's got some Protestant Lutheran influence. It's set in medieval Catholic Denmark, and he tells Ophelia, his love interest, he says to her, Be thou as chaste as ice, pure as snow, get thee to a nunnery. So he's telling her to become a Catholic nun. The next one is Henry V, and that's the tragedy. It's about the tragedy of war between two Catholic nations, England and France, and the need for unity between them. It's basically William Shakespeare bemoaning the Catholic English invasion of Catholic France and that Hundred Years' War, which sort of ended with Joan of Arc and that sort of thing. The next one is Romeo and Juliet. It's about two feuding families in Catholic Italy. It's a friar who helps the unity between the two lovers. And then the tragedy of suicide and feuding. The next one is Othello. It's about a Moor or Muslim who converted to Christianity and he marries Desdemona and fights against the Islamic Turks. So he's a, a Moor or North African who has converted to Catholicism and he's married to an Italian woman. But he's hated and conspired against by racists. And it's a play about the beauty of a marriage between two Catholics, one more and the other Italian. Now, here we get to a play that was a real slap in the face, in my opinion, to Queen Elizabeth I. And I don't know how it didn't escape her notice. Love's Labour's Lost. It was written in 1595 and it was just a few years after Queen Elizabeth had defeated the Spanish Armada in 1588. And that was because England provoked and goaded and did everything they could to provoke the Spaniards into a war. And they actually attacked Spain first. So Spain was simply retaliating, but they had bad uh, winds that gave the English the advantage. Now, Love's Labour's Lost is a play about the Catholic King of Navarra in Spain and his three companions who attempt to do three years of celibacy devoted to study and fasting. How very Catholic of the heroes of this play. And then there's the French princess and her ladies arrive and there's a comedy of romance and trickery in shoes. 
And then the princess's father dies, so they agree to wait a year before marrying uh, each other. And this play was specifically written for Queen Elizabeth. It would be like if, let's say, at the end of World War II in England, Winston Churchill, who had defeated the Nazis, asked this man who was strongly suspected of being a, a fifth columnist to make a movie. So he makes a movie about a Nazi German leader and his romance with a, a, fre a fishy French woman or something. How would Churchill have seen it? How would most people have seen it? They would see it as a slap in the face, an insult to the war that had just been fought. And yet here was Shakespeare writing a romance story about a Spanish king who falls in love with a French princess between two Catholic nations right after she had defeated the Spanish. Well, well, well. The next one, The Taming of the Shrew. It's set in Catholic Italy. It begins with the Carnival Festival, which is prior to Lent. It's set in Padua. And it's about a roughneck guy called Petruccio, who's from Verona. And he agrees to marry the fiery and bad-tempered Caterina. And using reverse psychology and mirrored behaviours and behaviours that most modern society would find pretty unacceptable, she becomes an obedient wife. And one of the esteemed men in that play has studied at Rheims. Rheims was where a lot of the underground Catholic resistance and secret priests trained in, uh, in France to go back to England Another play is Twelfth Night, and it's named after a Catholic festival in Christmas tide. It's the night. Uh, it's the twelfth night after Christmas Day, the Feast of Epiphany, and it's a play about role reversals in popular culture of the time. It's a lost at sea adventure set in Italy and the Balkans. Another play is King John. King John was a man who reigned from 1199 to 1216 and he was an illegitimate tyrant in Catholic England and he's denounced by a holy hermit, Peter of Pomfret, and he's poisoned by a monk. So Cardinal Pandulf in this play excommunicates King John and formulates a peace treaty after the king's death. Wow! So it's a play about a scoundrel of a king and devout Catholics conspire against this illegitimate king and have him overthrown. And now we get to the sonnets. There is sonnet 29 where he beweeps his outcast state, his cursed fate, he looks to heaven rich in hope and happily thinks on thee like a lark singing at heaven's gate. The sweet love he receives, makes him scorn to change his state with kings. And Sonnet 66, he looks forward to restful death. He lives with the purest faith, unhappily forsworn. And his art is made tongue-tied by authority. 
That's the poem of someone living a double life and resisting the authorities. And then the phoenix and the turtle. Now turtle in this context refers to a turtle dove, a bird most likely, rather than the reptile. It talks about fever's end. It talks about the priest in white who presides over a death. And then there's the mourners for the dead. And then there's the turtle and the phoenix who loved each other despite their differences. It's called beauty, truth and rarity, grace in all simplicity. Truth and beauty buried be. And it closes by saying, for these dead birds sigh a prayer. That, my friends, is a Catholic practice of praying for the dead, for the souls in purgatory. That is not a Protestant teaching. So the turtle, sorry, the phoenix and the turtle seems to indicate that. His plays, my friends, many of them are, are not related to Catholicism, but a heck of a lot of them are, and they seem to subtly bring out either Catholic doctrines or Catholic victories over their enemies or resistance against illegitimate kings. Now, if you like watching Shakespeare movies, as I do, I've written up a list of the best Shakespeare films out there. There's Romeo and Juliet, the 1968 version. It goes for two hours and 18 minutes and it stars Olivia Hussey. The Tragedy of Macbeth, 1971. That's two hours and 20 minutes and that's directed by Roman Polanski. Then there's The Taming of the Shrew, the 1967 version with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. And that couple in real life were married and divorced twice. They were well cast for the role in that film. Then there is Hamlet, the 1990 version with Mel Gibson and Glenn Close. And then there is Richard III, the 1955 version with Laurence Olivier. There is The Tempest, 1960 version with Richard Burton and Roddy McDowell. And Henry V, the 1989 version starring Kenneth Branagh. And lastly, Othello, the 1952 version starring Orson Welles. Well, if you've enjoyed my podcast and my channel, please consider subscribing and giving a five-star review and recommending it to your friends and family and posting it on social media because that is the best way to get the message out. I'm going to close with a reading I did several years ago of The Phoenix and the Turtle. I did it several months before I converted to Catholicism and I had no idea that I was reading a covert Catholic poem by Shakespeare. Enjoy, and thank you for listening. The Phoenix and the Turtle by William Shakespeare Read by Paul Martin Let the bird of loudest lay On the sole Arabian tree Herald sad and trumpet be To whose sound chaste wings obey 
But thou, shrieking harbinger, foul procurer of the fiend, orker of the fever's end, to this troop come thou not near. From this session interdict every fowl of tyrant wing, save the eagle-feathered king, keep the obsequy so strict. Let the priest in surplus white, that defunctive music can, be the deaf divining swan, lest the requiem lack his right. And thou, treble-dated crow, that thy sabre gender makest, with the breath thou givest and takest, Mongst our mourners shalt thou go. Here the anthem doth commence, Love and constancy is dead. Phoenix and the turtle fled, In a mutual flame from hence. So they loved, as love in twain, Had the essence but in one, Two distincts division none, Number there in love was slain. Hearts remote yet not asunder, Distance and no space was seen, Twixt the turtle and his queen, but in them it were a wonder. So between them love did shine, that the turtle saw his right, flaming in the phoenix's sight. Either was the other's mine. Property was thus appalled, that the self was not the same, single nature's double name, neither two nor one was called. Reason in itself confounded, saw division grow together, to themselves yet even neither. Simple were so well confounded. That it cried, how true a twain, Seemeth this concordant one, Love hath reason, reason none, If what parts can so remain. Whereupon it made this freen, To the phoenix and the dove, Co-supremes and stars of love, As chorus to their tragic scene. Threnos. Beauty, truth, and rarity, grace in all simplicity, here enclosed in cinders lie. Death is now the phoenix's nest, and the turtle's loyal breast, to eternity doth rest. Leaving no posterity, twas not their infirmity, it was married chastity. Truth may seem, but cannot be. Beauty brag, but tis not she. Truth and beauty buried be. To this urn let those repair, That are either true or fair, For these dead birds sigh a prayer.